Wait until you get a really great job and make tons of cash, and then you can invest. Right? When you're, when you're 40, put some money into a bank account. Or a hole in your yard. <laughs> or a hole in your yard. Is that, is that right, Emily? Does that sound right? Welcome to Hello PhD, the podcast for scientists and the people who love them. This week, we talk with Emily Roberts about investment strategies for grad students and postdocs. Stay with us. And we're back. This is Hello PhD, episode 89. I'm Joshua Hall. And I'm Daniel Erneman. And we'll discuss the human side of science and life in the lab. Hey there, Dan. We are here. We're here. Spring yet? It is. I've seen daffodils. Yeah, I have some that popped up at my mailbox. I've got these little mini daffodils. They're super cute. They're like small versions of regular daffodils. Did you plant them or they just yeah, happened no, no. to show up? I planted them for something. I don't remember why, but... You planted them for this. This is why, <laughs> to see them outside your house. <laughs> That's right. Today, Dan, we have... This is my new favorite beer right now. This is my house beer. Okay, what do you have? This is the Lagunitas Daytime Ale, and it also says it's a fractional IPA. Uh, I don't quite know what that means, but... Was the bottle full or was it half full? <laughs> it's half full for me, Dan. Half empty. Uh, but I will say, Dan, this checks all the boxes for me. This is a session type IPA. It's only 4.65% ABV, so pretty pretty light, but really good hoppy character, I think. What do you think? Yeah, it is. And a smooth... Um a smooth finish on it. It is the type of hops that are more piney. So if you're interested in that flavor, this is the beer for you. If you don't like the piney flavor, maybe go a different direction. That is true, Dan. You know, I try to keep it mixed up. You know, I have a Citra Hops IPA, and then I mix, mix it up with this sometimes more piney hops yeah, IPA. Sometimes it's a tangerine, sometimes it's a pine tree, <laughs> sometimes it's a bar of soap. They all taste delicious. <laughs> it's all, all good. Uh, but yeah, man, I've been going through these. I know my beer store can hardly keep these in stock because I keep... I just keep getting this one. There's like so many choices, but I'm digging this one right now. Dan, one thing I got to say is yesterday was a real treat for me. You got to see me two days in a row? I did, Dan. You were you were on campus. Back in the old stomping grounds, there is a group at UNC for science writing and communication, and they're doing a, a series this year on various forms of science communication. And so we got to go and give a talk on starting a podcast, how to do it, kind of the nuts and bolts. Yeah, it was super fun. We had a room full of grad students and postdocs who were all interested in starting their own podcasts. And it was really fun taking a walk down memory lane, thinking about the early days of starting this podcast, things we've learned, and just trying to encourage other people that, hey, you can do this too. Yeah, it was really fun. I hope that all of those people start podcasts. You know, the piece of advice you gave that I thought was great was find the thing that everybody's tired of you talking about that's your podcast because you're just so passionate about it that your friends and your spouse and your neighbors are just like shut up about graduate training and education josh start a podcast are you saying we should start a podcast about ipas i think we just did (laughs) also dan i wanted to say i have been really enjoying our hello phd slack channel that we have set up for our patreon subscribers we've had some really cool interactions and conversations going on there it is such an incredible medium to be able to go deeper on topics that we cover here. And it's you and I talking together, but it's, it's I don't know, so valuable to me to hear people in other countries and their experience and um, at different stages of their scientific training. So I don't know, it's just such a cool thing to be able to hear back in real time as people discuss these issues. It's really fun. Yeah. And so 
if you'd like to be part of that ongoing conversation, you can become a, a patron. You can just go to patreon.com slash hellophd or click the become a patron button on our website. We would love to have you be part of the conversation. We'll see you online. All right, Dan, you ready for some science in the news? I'm ready. All right, Dan, there's really no way for me to transition into this topic. Um, so I'm just going to come out and say it. We're going to talk a little bit about firearms and gun safety. Yeah. Clearly, if you are listening anywhere in the United States uh, and probably around the world, you are familiar with the tragic events that happened just last week in Parkland, Florida, where a uh, high school was attacked by a maniac with an assault rifle. And we are pretty apolitical uh, here on the show, and we don't want to politicize um, that event or the tragedy that occurred. But I think what we'd like to do today is talk about the science uh, behind gun violence and gun violence prevention, and to go through uh, maybe what scientists could be or should be doing to understand that issue. Is that right, Josh? Yeah, that's absolutely right. And, you know, as human beings, we faced a lot of really big really complex problems throughout the history of our humanity. And in a lot of ways, it's through discovery and science that we've been able to better understand these really complex issues and and actually move forward as society. And sometimes that takes a while to do, um, especially when the problem is very big and very complex. It's always been a really important feature, I think, of mankind to want to understand things um, as we move forward and try to solve them. But when it comes to, to gun violence, at least in the United States, for the last 30 to 40 years, we've been in an interesting place politically. And and the United States is like a lot of countries, I would imagine, where the vast majority of research funding comes from the federal government. And we talk about that a lot with regards to health funding. That's right. And the history here is interesting. So the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, are responsible for understanding uh, mortality and human health. And uh, they estimate that the firearms are one of the top five causes of death in the United States for people under the age of 65. And so traditionally, and you can make an argument that this is important, the CDC can study gun violence the way that it studies other traumatic injuries, uh, deaths by car accident, things like that, as a type of mortality that maybe deserves further research. And that was true up until about 1997. Yeah, so around that time, actually this was in in 1996, uh, the United States Congress put forth something called the Dickey Amendment, and that was named after its author, Jay Dickey, who was a Republican member of the U.S. House of Representatives from Arkansas. And what the Dickey Amendment did is it was a provision that was at first inserted in into a federal government spending bill. And, and what it did was it mandated that none of the funds made available for injury, prevention, and control Uh, which is a division of the CDC, could be used to advocate or promote gun control. So I think the concern by some politicians was that funds that were being channeled to this injury prevention and control arm of the CDC that was being used for studying gun violence, they didn't want that money used for lobbying purposes um, against firearms use in the United States. Yeah, the the organization was still allowed to research injuries and deaths from firearms, but they weren't allowed to politicize it or to make recommendations about political goals to to change those numbers. And it went a little bit further than that because the following year, the the budget for that program was basically cut out of the CDC. Uh, the, the CDC's budget was cut by $2.6 million, which was the precise amount that had been going to this gun research program. 
Yeah, and it's important to note the historical context of, of this happening. So the amendment was introduced after some pretty intensive lobbying by the National Rifle Association, or NRA, and this was in response to, I guess from their point of view, perceived bias for this 1993 study by a researcher named Arthur Kellerman, and he's an American physician, epidemiologist, and current professor and dean at the Herbert School of Medicine at Uniform Services University. And, and what his research found in this 1993 study was that guns in homes were associated with an increased risk of homicide, as well as other, some other CDC-funded studies that, that gave similar results for the presence of guns leading to gun violence. Yeah, I think this is an important place to, to pause and think. So um, this is a correlational study or a statistical statement about the presence of guns and the incidence of homicide um, I don't know that this paper, we, I, don't, I haven't read it yet, but I don't know that this paper said anything about what should be done about that. It merely points out the fact that in homes where guns are present, homicides tend to occur more often. And it's the same type of thing that you can imagine with any other type of, of research. So if we are looking at the incidence of teen deaths in car accidents due to you know, having their friends in the car... Those are, those are numbers that we can measure. But the impact of that research is totally apolitical. And so that research can continue in this case because there is a threat maybe of changing laws based on gun rights. Uh, that research had to be basically was offensive and, and was shut down because of that. Yeah, and, and we've seen this happen in other contexts, whether it's been climate change or women's health or a host of issues, a response to, I don't, necessarily like the the results of this research or or the results of this research potentially have negative consequences for my economic interests or my personal ideals so the response is not to do additional research but let's just not let's just stop asking the questions that's right and and i think it's ironic it's interesting to think about the fact that um, in the cdc's 2016 budget there's six million dollars of research for prion diseases which we recognize as an important issue and something that we'd want to understand about. But prion diseases affect an estimated 300 people in the United States, just 300 a year. Compared to gun deaths, it's a a drop in the bucket, a serious issue, but not even close in terms of the impact on people's lives. And so if you thought about this in a proportional manner, you would think a lot more than $6 million would be given to understanding gun deaths. And this is not just the type of massacre that occurred at the school last week, gun deaths that occurred due to violence in city streets, uh, suicide-based gun deaths. There are a lot of different ways that this research would really benefit just understanding how this is happening and then potentially what are the different uh, paths we could take to making it less without removing people's rights. Yeah, and, and Dan, as this debate has, has once again raged on here in the United States, I've seen this argument before, but as a historical example, you know, back in the 60s, Congress noticed that, that people in a similar age group to, to those that are that now high incidents being affected by gun violence were being killed on highways um, in automobile accidents. And so what the, the government did at that time was they appropriated $200 million for the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration to do research on how to make cars safer, how to make roads safer, how to train drivers better. And it's been estimated that that research has saved over 350,000 lives. And, and none of that involved confiscating automobiles, but it was just trying to understand 
what's causing this problem? And if we better understand what's causing this, then we can come up with responses that make sense. How do we make it safer to, to drive a car, to own a car? Yeah. And so a couple, just a couple last interesting happenings right now. So in the years since the Dickey Amendment, one thing that I found interesting as I was reading more about this was that Jay Dickey, the original author of the amendment, has since, in more recent years, um, Jay Dickey actually came out saying he regretted his role in stopping the CDC from researching gun violence, that his initial interest was he didn't want these dollars to go towards advocacy, but he was quoted saying, doing nothing is no longer an acceptable solution in a 2015 letter to um, other representatives in Congress. Most recently, just this week after the, the tragic events that have unfolded, Martin Heinrich, who is a Democratic representative from New Mexico, is now calling for repeal of the Dickey Amendment and trying to introduce legislation in Congress that would repeal that restriction on funding for gun violence by the CDC. It'll be interesting to see what happens. Uh, There's still a lot of lobbying dollars and political opposition, just like there were in the 90s, uh, if not more intensified today. So it'll be interesting to see what happens there. But one one last point I want to leave us with, Dan, was, was a quote from David Hemingway, and he's director of the Harvard Injury Control Research Center. And so you could think about this, Dan, this is a similarly focused center as the one in the CDC that initially would, that would be studying gun violence. And he says this, he says, compounding the lack of research funding is the fear among some researchers that studying guns will make them political targets and threaten their funding even for unrelated topics. There are so many big issues in the world, and the question is, do you want to do gun research? Because you're going to get attacked. No one is attacking us when we do heart disease. Yeah, it's so so true. This, this is science in the news because this is in the news, clearly, and um, the news has been heartbreaking and tragic, and I, I have been, I think like most people, really upset, but also very confused by the proposals about how to fix the problem. And I wanted to read a quote also, Josh, uh, this one by Mark Rosenberg, who was the founding director of the CDC's uh, Center for Injury Prevention and Control and was the one who headed this program. His quote that I'll read now gives me a lot of hope that a rational approach, a scientific approach could help us. And in fact, it's really the only way for us to to move ahead. He said, it is possible, indeed necessary for scientists to find ways to both reduce gun violence and protect gun rights. For instance, right now, we don't know whether arming all teachers in a school will save lives or take more lives. We don't know whether making it easier for people to carry concealed weapons will save lives or result in more deaths. And we don't know whether banning the sale of semi-automatic rifles will prevent mass shootings or lead to more gun deaths because there will be fewer good guys with a gun to stop the bad guys with guns. To answer the questions, we also have to measure the degree to which each intervention infringes on the rights of law-abiding gun owners. Only rigorous, objective, and well-designed scientific research can find the answer. And his statement, that statement just gives me hope that there is a path forward, but we have to depoliticize the search for that answer. Yeah, and I know after something tragic like the events of this past week, we often don't know what we can do about it. So maybe if there's specific practical thing that we can do, it's as researchers, and especially those of us who are citizens of the United States, it's call our Congress people and ask them to take action like repealing the Dickey Amendment, allow scientists to actually begin studying um, this gun violence issue for the public health crisis that it is. And any future decisions that our lawmakers make will, will not be based on emotion, not be based on um, ideology, but be based on, on facts and data. All right, Josh, I think we should leave it there. 
please send us your thoughts. You can tweet to us at HelloPhD or write to us podcast at HelloPhD. And now let's get to some lighter topics, please. Like investing. All right. So we have Emily Roberts back on the show for a third time. This might be a record for guests on the show. Hello, Emily. Hello. Very happy to be here. We are certainly glad to have you back. And on this show, we've got a topic that we haven't covered before, but is one that we know a lot of our listeners are thinking about, and that is investing while in graduate school. Yeah, and we'll remind everybody, Emily is the founder of Personal Finance for PhDs, and uh, she has committed her career to helping people just like you, our our listeners, PhDs, um, postdocs, trainees, to figure out the really unusual and unique circumstances of uh, how you manage finances when you don't make a ton of money and you have all these weird tax implications. Yeah, and I wanted to direct people to, um, if you like what you hear today, or, or you'd like some more information on related finance topics, way back on episode 33, Emily came on the show to talk about some unique considerations for doing taxes that graduate students might want to think about. And it is tax season now, so if you are scratching your head about that topic, check out episode 33 uh, and also episode 68 where Emily came on the show to talk about targeted savings accounts, which is a really unique way that grad students and postdocs can start thinking about um, saving for expenses, uh, bigger expenses or expenses that maybe pop up on an irregular basis. And I will say, Emily, since that episode, I started doing this and I created a targeted savings account for my taxes and also for travel. You're walking the walk. I love it. Yeah, that sounds amazing. That really warms my heart. <laughs> well, welcome back, Emily. Um, the topic today, as Josh mentioned, is investing while in grad school. And since grad students don't make a lot of money, I guess we can stop right there, right? There's nothing to talk about. <laughs> yeah, just don't do it. Wait until you get a really great job and make tons of cash, and then you can invest, when right? You're, when you're 40, put some money into a bank account. <laughs> or a hole in your yard. <laughs> or a hole in your yard. Is that, is that right, Emily? Does that sound right? Um, well, for the people you know who that has to be the way that it is, it is a situation that you have to accept. Um, but there are plenty of graduate students who have... Uh, the ability to start investing or saving for their goals or or paying off debt during grad school or postdocs during their postdoc. Uh, it really depends on kind of the cost of living where you are and what you're being paid. But there are plenty of graduate students who are able to start investing. And in fact, based on my personal experience talking with graduate students all over the country, you know, through my websites, through my talks, I've noticed that this is this <laughs> this topic, investing and taxes, are tied for like the number one topics that people are interested in. And I think it's because a lot of graduate students and, and postdocs are able to start investing, but even those who aren't are so eager for information because they know that they need to get started as soon as they as soon as it's feasible for them. Yeah, so let's talk let's start with why it's important to think about investing if you can or saving some money aside when you are in grad school. Yeah, absolutely. So probably the number one most compelling reason is the time value of money. And so what that means is that a dollar that you receive today is worth more than a dollar that you receive some years or some decades from now because in the intervening time, that dollar can be invested and it can grow. And so that reason and sort of the math behind that, the power of compound interest, is why I don't believe that graduate students and postdocs should discount any small amount of money that they're able to start investing 
right now because it can really have an outsized effect on your wealth um, in many, many years because they're of getting this steady, steady, uh, well, maybe not steady, but a rate of return of some kind over you know the intervening decades. I actually have a calculation. I'll link to it from pf4phds.com slash hellophd. I did a calculation that just, of course, this is a model. So just an amount of money that a hypothetical graduate student might be able to save during graduate school could have in their retirement, a $1 million effect. So just the money they would save over like five years in graduate school if they did $250 a month, if you wait long enough and get a decent enough rate of return, that money can turn into a million dollars or something quite similar. And you're saying just money put away during the years you're in grad school. Yeah, that's not even continuing after graduate school. Uh, Of course, you would build up more and more and more if you keep doing that, but that's the power of compound interest. Small amounts of money, given enough time, given a decent rate of return, can turn into huge amounts of money. So so basically, if you do a standard PhD of about 10 to 11 years, <laughs> and you invest for 250 a month, when you, <laughs> when you graduate by the time you're 75... Hey, the silver lining of staying in grad school longer. <laughs> no, but that's really helpful. I think that the, the notion of compound interest is one that maybe scientists don't hear very much about. And, and there's a real value to doing something soon, even if it's small. I think that's what you're saying to us. Absolutely. And there are other reasons, aside from compound interest, to... Um, to make investing or saving or debt repayment part of your life as early as possible. And that's habit formation. So it really, it kind of changes your character. Like when you become a person who invests, when you become an investor, even if that, you know, the actual dollar amount that you're investing is quite small, that's a habit that if you start that during graduate school or during your postdoc, during these most financially challenging periods of your life, you're never going to have an excuse to stop later. It's like, if I was able to do this during graduate school, I have no reason to stop for the rest of my life. So it really is powerful for habit formation. I totally agree. Well, one thing I want to ask is, I think a barrier to starting with investment can be, you know, as a scientist, a lot of us have been trained in the terminology of our specific field, but maybe we don't we don't have a lot of the acronyms down for the finance world. So could you talk just a little bit about how would a student get started? What are some specifics? What types of accounts might we think about, might grad students think about looking into if they say, all right, I want to get started investing. You know, I want to maybe even start putting aside $100 a month, but but what kind of account? What do I do? What do I do next? Yeah, that's a perfect question. So the first decision to make or thing to check into is whether or not the student is eligible for a tax-advantaged retirement account. And so Usually when we think about that kind of account, it's a 401k, right? And it's associated with a workplace, usually in the private sector. And graduate students almost universally are not eligible for the equivalent that's offered at universities, which are 403bs. Say, yeah, say what those are. Those are, those are stock-based investments. What does, that, what does that look like? So they're not... So these are just... Okay, you can think of a tax-advantaged retirement account of whatever type as an envelope that wraps around the actual investments that you choose. So the investments themselves could be stocks, could be bonds, could be a variety of other things, could be cash. And then the question is whether or not those investments are wrapped inside of this envelope that protects it from taxes. So a tax-advantaged retirement account is one where once you have contributed the money, 
that money is going to grow ideally if you've chosen well in your investments and you have some luck or whatever. Those investments will grow, but they won't be subject to any taxation while they're inside the account. With a traditional type of retirement account, um, a traditional 401k, a traditional 403b, a traditional IRA, you take a tax deduction on the amount of money that you contribute. So that money this doesn't year, count right? Toward, right at the moment, like at the moment of contribution. So you won't pay tax on that bit. And then you won't pay tax as this money is growing, growing, growing. And then you do pay ordinary income tax when you withdraw it in retirement. When you're choosing the other option, the Roth, um, the situation is the reverse. So you pay your full tax on the amount of money that you contribute to the IRA or the 401k, et cetera. It grows tax-free. And then when you take it out, you don't pay ordinary income tax. And so the kind of the choice here, at least the first pass way to think about this, is when will you pay the lower tax rate? Is it right now or is it in retirement? And I find that graduate students, you know, we're, we're in training, we're, gonna, we're advancing our careers, we sort of think of our incomes and lifestyles right now in graduate school as being suppressed. And so most graduate students have sort of higher expectations for their lifestyle and their income in retirement. And so they make the assumption that they'll be in a higher tax bracket in retirement than they are today. And therefore, pretty much virtually every graduate student I've talked to about this issue has chosen to use a Roth version of whatever accounts, tax advantage retirement accounts are available to them. For postdocs, it's maybe a bit more of a question whether Roth or traditional would be um, the tipping point. And certainly it matters what your spouse would earn and so forth. But that's the thinking behind Roth versus traditional. That's really helpful. When I think of... um you can you can find out how much faculty earn. There are public databases of such things, and and quite often faculty earn upwards of one hundred or two hundred thousand dollars, depending on the type of research they do, and the uh, I guess the success that they've had in their career. So and maybe other administrative administrative positions. Position. You can make quite a bit of money if you get on that tenure track at a top tier university. Um, so yes, you you could be paying very high tax brackets later on in life if that's the path you get on. So it'd be great to put your money in now when you are a poverty-stricken graduate student and not pay it later. Well, and I remember my personal experience in, in graduate school. You know, early in graduate school, my wife and I were newlyweds and and accrued some some debts. So we once we got that worked out, we we started thinking about investing for the future. And I remember researching these traditional IRAs versus Roth IRAs. And we ultimately chose the Roth IRA. And the reason I did was I remember looking at those graphs like you talked about and how the amount I was going to put in was hopefully a much smaller number than the amount it was eventually going to grow to. And the advantage of that Roth was, okay, well, I'm going to pay tax now on this smaller amount, but all of that growth, that big amount, it's going to be really nice to not have to pay taxes on that. Exactly. Um, and I sometimes get the question from students about, you know, can I switch between like a Roth and a traditional at some point? Yes, it's totally up to you. You're not locked into that decision. It makes a lot of sense to contribute to a Roth while you're young and have a lower income in general and to contribute to a traditional, you know, as you're sort of in your peak earning years. Absolutely. And even within the same calendar year, you could contribute to both types if that made sense for you. Um, it doesn't increase your contribution limit overall, but you could split your contribution between the two types. Now, there is a limit on the Roth, if I'm not mistaken, although maybe this is not a problem that grad students might have. Yeah, so we we actually didn't quite get to talking about IRAs because we sort of got off on 401ks and 403bs. And so for, for a graduate student who most likely does not have access to a workplace-based retirement account like a 401k or a 403b, 
Um, the individual retirement arrangement or IRA is uh, probably the only game in town. And it may, they may not even be eligible for that. So you first have to check into the eligibility question. But yes, for an IRA, so for 2017, for example, and I believe 2018 as well, the contribution limit is $5,500 um, per person for Roth or traditional. Tell us more about the the eligibility for IRAs. So you said that that all of the other things are kind of off the table because they're not supplied by the workplace for a graduate student or a postdoc. So how do how does one find what they are eligible for and are there good places to start because I know a lot of different organizations will offer some of these uh, financial vehicles. Yeah, exactly. So the first step is to figure out um, how you are being paid by your university or your funding source. So to contribute to an IRA or really, I believe, any other type of tax advantage retirement account, you need what is termed taxable compensation. Uh, The term used to be earned income, so you may be familiar with that as well. Um, And (laughs) the emphasis here should be on the word compensation as the question rather than taxable, because as we just talked about, um, grad student stipends and postdoc salaries are at least potentially taxable. So you're not going to get out of paying taxes on it. But the question is whether or not it's compensation. And the way that's defined at the graduate student level is whether or not you receive a W-2 for your income for the past calendar year. Usually that translates to, did you have an assistantship? And that would give you W-2 pay or compensatory pay. Or did you have a fellowship or were you on a training grant, which would give you non-compensatory pay and would not be reported on a W-2? So the real definitive way to figure this out for your grad student income is, did you receive a W-2? And the same thing is true at the postdoc level. So postdocs who are employees of their universities are going to be receiving W-2 income. They are eligible to contribute to an IRA. They may also be eligible for the 403B or other workplace-based a retirement account offered by the university. Maybe. Postdocs who are fellows, who are not employees, who are not receiving W-2 pay are not going to have access to an IRA, not going to have access to the workplace-based options. That's so so fascinating. So if you're on that training grant, you may not be eligible for this at all. Mm-hmm. Yep. It all depends on kind of how, <laughs> how those taxes are, how your income is reported for tax purposes at the end of the year. And the W-2 presence or non-presence is exactly the way to find out. So if you go an entire calendar year and you have absolutely no um, W-2 income from your grad student pay or your postdoc pay, and you have absolutely no outside income, like from a side job or your funding source never changed or anything like that, and you weren't married because... If you have a spouse with taxable compensation, that counts for you as well. You can use your spouse's taxable compensation. If you had absolutely none of those, you aren't going to be eligible to contribute to an IRA or anything else. That doesn't mean you can't save for retirement. And I don't want to discourage people because often the students and postdocs who are receiving fellowships might be paid better than the students and postdocs who aren't. So they might even have more ability to save at that point but they just don't have that eligibility right then. Doesn't mean you can't save for retirement. It just means you're not going to get that, that protective envelope around your investments that keeps, keeps the tax man away, right? So you would have to pay a little bit of tax um, every year on the gains in that account, on any taxable you know, events that occurred. But I just want to reassure them that it's probably going to be a pretty minor bite because of the low tax bracket that at least graduate students are in right now. It happens to be that... Um, Currently, or at least in 2017, for people who are in the 15% marginal tax bracket, if they have long-term capital gains and qualified dividends, 
um, they have a 0% uh, federal tax rate on those on that income. So short-term capital gains, non-qualified dividends, you would still be paying tax at the federal level. And there may be tax at the state level as well, depending on what state you live in. But at least um, for those long-term uh, capital gains and, long and qualified dividends, there would be no federal tax on that. So that bite, the tax bite, might be relatively small because you're in that low tax bracket. Well, that's interesting. Uh, I'm glad you actually mentioned individuals on fellowships um, who wouldn't necessarily be eligible for these these tax-advantaged accounts uh, through the United States uh, because, you know, for one thing, besides those individuals, we have a number of listeners who aren't from the United States, um, which doesn't mean that saving for retirement is not an important thing to do. So one thing I thought it might be interesting to talk about is, is let's say, you know, regardless of whether you decide, okay, a Roth IRA is a good thing for me, I want to do that, or I'm not eligible for one reason or another, but I do want to invest some money every month for retirement, what would be some good effective investing strategies that a trainee might be able to employ? Yeah, I'm nervous, ab- with I'm nervous about this because, um, you know, I can imagine that if somebody's going to get into the stock market, they're going to need to really research individual stocks that they're going to be purchasing and watch them every day. You could turn into a day trader instead of running your gel. <laughs> I have met um, a person or two who, who has uh, chosen that lifestyle. Yeah, I don't think that's what most uh, people who are pursuing PhDs and PhD training want. I don't think they want a side job trading stocks. And the good news is that they absolutely do not have to approach investing that way. And in fact, will most likely be more successful if they don't approach investing that way than those who do. So I'll take a moment to explain that because I do think we have this idea in our culture that the way that you do investing well is either to you know do all the research yourself into all these individual investments um, and keep on top of it. And it basically does become a part-time or full-time job to manage your own investments. Or you have to pick the really smart professional fund manager like Warren Buffett and go in like with that person while they're on their hot streak. And really, the case, it's neither is is truly the case, at least over the long term. So you don't have to run into the New York Stock Exchange right when the bell rings and yell "sell, sell." You can, you just shouldn't. <laughs> I mean, that's know. usually what I do, you know. Yeah. But you don't have to. He runs into me. his local credit union every morning and <laughs> screams it, and they usher him back out. <laughs> yeah, I would definitely question um, your investing record if that was your approach to it. So that's active investing, right? Like. researching in detail, individual investments, um, pushing money into the market, pulling money out, doing this market timing strategy, uh, all of that. So that's active investing. And that's the way we sort of would naturally think that investing has to be. But there is an alternative to that, which is called passive investing. So with an active investing strategy, you're trying to beat the market all the time. You're trying to outsmart the market. And with a passive investing strategy, it's sort of like we just admit that that's not going to happen. And all we're trying to do is match the market returns in some given market sector. So like, I just want to have the same returns as like the stock market overall. Not my little select picks within the stock market, just the whole stock market overall. I want to have the same investing outcome as the stock market overall. That would be a passive investment choice. And you can enact this passive invested investing strategy through index funds. And an index fund, as sort of the name implies, when you think about the stock market indices that are used to track how the market is doing, it's like the S&P 500, the Dow Jones, the NASDAQ, those are indices. And you can buy a fund that just plain old reflects those indices, that just 
is representative of how the market overall or some subset of it is doing and just try to match those market returns instead of beating them. So that's a that's a simpler approach. It's much less time consuming. You know, you don't have to do this tons of research. You don't have to keep on top of everything. You just try to do the same as the market. So it's a very time efficient approach. Um, it's also an, an inexpensive approach because this active investing strategy is actually very expensive to do all these transactions, all these trades all the time. All of that has a cost to it. If you're paying a fund manager, you're going to have to pay that person very handsomely to be actively you know, managing those investments. And so all that kind of adds up. And it turns out that when you look at the actual... like these, There's been plenty of empirical studies on this. When you look at the actual long-term investment outcomes for various different investing strategies, active versus passive in different market sectors, once you factor in the higher costs associated with active investing, passive investing, the passive investing strategy is actually the most successful strategy compared to active. 80% of the time when we're talking about professionally managed funds, a passive strategy beats out a similar active strategy 80% of the time. So just trying to match those market returns will most of the time be much more successful than trying to beat the market. Because most of the time, it turns out people are failing to beat the market. I think a lot of this information that you're, you're giving us is really, is really encouraging that, first of all, you don't have to have just lots and lots of extra money to start investing to really have a real impact long term. But also, you don't have to have a degree in finance and devote hours every week to, to managing this stuff either. You're saying it can be done uh, fairly efficiently, almost a set it and forget it type situation, even with a high percentage of, of it working out really well, even better for you in the long term. Yeah, it's it's very counterintuitive because we there's like as consumers there's kind of like nothing else in our lives where the um the most effective choice, the best choice in terms of your outcomes doesn't cost you something in either time or money. And really in this case, I mean passive investing is the most effective strategy empirically verified on average most of the time and it's low cost and it's a low time commitment. And it's just, it's just incredible that those things can coincide together in one um, product, so to speak. But in this case, they do. And it's, it's fortunate for, for us, the people who do not want to be you know, part-time or full-time day traders, um, who just want to have a set-it-and-forget-it strategy or a very low-touch management strategy. I love this for scientists as well. I mean, you, you keep using the word empirical. This is, this is what the math tells us works out most of the time for most people. And uh, I think that's easy for scientists to get behind. Emily, this has been great. One last thing I have to ask you, though, is, is just in general, what advice would you give to a grad student or postdoc who's listening to the show today and they're feeling a little bit motivated to maybe start investing? Just any general advice for, for somebody like that? Yeah, so I would say that um, really the best thing to do is just get started because... Um, like we were talking about earlier, the time really makes a lot of difference. Even an extra year or two that you know that you would start investing earlier can make a huge difference down the line. So get started, and don't be too worried about having the perfect strategy like right out of the gate. I made a really silly mistake with my investments when I started, and it took me about a year to figure out I had made that mistake. And I just course corrected. Like, that's okay. That's fine. You can recover and move on. It's really better just to get started imperfectly than to stay stuck in analysis paralysis. Um, and so for like specific suggestions, the ones that I always point to in my seminars are to look at 
low-cost online brokerage firms. So for instance, uh, Vanguard, Fidelity, and Charles Schwab, excellent places to open up an IRA or a brokerage account or whatever you would like to do. They're not going to charge you an arm and leg in fees. And fees are very important, as we talked about earlier. So those are great options. Do, do not go through your bank because most likely your bank is not going to offer you the wide array of investment choices that are appropriate for someone saving for retirement multiple decades down the line. And then once you've you know chosen your brokerage firm and opened your IRA or your not IRA or whatever you want, I would say if you, if you are sort of <laughs> buying what I'm saying about this passive investing strategy or you've looked into it more and you, you, know, you, you decide that's what you're going to do, um, check out the, the target date funds or also sometimes called life cycle funds. So these are funds that are, they conform with the passive investing strategy that I was just talking about. The funds themselves create an appropriate asset allocation for you. And an asset allocation is just the ratio among the different types of investments that you have. So like your ratio of stocks to bonds to cash, for example, those are the three major asset classes. So they'll just choose an, an appropriate asset allocation for your age, for example, if this is for retirement. Um, and it's really a set it and forget it kind of kind of fund. Like you just put your money in and let, let the brokerage firm kind of handle things and it's very low cost and it's very easy. Uh, and you can totally just not even check on it that often, maybe like once a quarter or something if you want to. And I won't say that targeted savings accounts or the equivalents are like the perfect investing strategy for everyone all the time at all ages, but it is a really easy an appropriate way to get started. Yeah, and I will echo what you said too in, in my experience as a grad student when I first did this. I know I put it off probably longer than I should have because it was something I wasn't very confident in my ability to do. And so I just kept putting off looking into starting these things. But once I did, I went to the Fidelity Investments website, which is one of the ones you mentioned. I'm sure they're all the same. And I couldn't believe how fast and easy it was to just click and open up one of these. Um, and I started with one of these targeted date accounts just to enter my bank info in, the amount I wanted to, to put in each month. And within really a matter of minutes, I didn't have to go anywhere. I just did it all on the website. And right. And it comes out. It was I, done. I think one of the keys is it comes out of your bank account automatically. Mm -hmm. So you don't have to write the check every month where, you know, I have to think about, do I really have the money this month to do this? It's just gone before you notice it's gone and then you're saving. Yeah. I'm a huge advocate of automating your savings or your debt repayment or whatever your financial goal is that you're working on at the time. Um, and this is a form of paying yourself first, right? So when you set up that automated savings rate and you don't have to use your willpower, you don't have to use your memory to make it happen, you know, do it um, at the beginning of the month, right? Like shortly after you're paid so that, um, you know, it's your priority and you sort of adjust the rest of your lifestyle around to make sure that you are able to make things balance at the end of the month versus if you try to save at the end of every month and you're making it, you know, not automatic, it, it's always manual, it's always whatever you have left over, there's never going to be any money left over. I mean, it's always just going to disappear and go who knows where. So make it a priority, make it automatic, um, even if it's a small rate, it'll it'll put that habit into place. It'll change your character. You will become an investor, and eventually you'll be able to you know find more ways to throw more money at it, or or you'll get to the next stage in your career and you'll have a higher income and you can really up that savings rate. Absolutely. And if anybody wants to again hear more about targeted savings and how that can be a really cool thing to do, go back and listen to episode sixty eight. We devoted a whole uh, topic on an episode to that. And Emily, thank you so much. This has been really helpful um, and hopefully encouraging to graduate students and postdocs that this is 
attainable, that this is something they can do. How can they hear more from you and get in touch with you? Yeah, absolutely. So the best place to go is my website, Personal Finance for PhDs. That's pfforphds.com, PF for PhDs. And if you go to PF for PhDs slash Hello PhD, I'll have some notes and links there that are specifically for this episode. And one of the links that I definitely would love for you to check out is this email course that I just launched about a month ago. So it's totally free, seven-day email course um, on investing for early career PhDs. So grad students, postdocs, PhDs in their first real jobs. It explains um, a lot of the stuff we covered today, a lot more in a lot more detail. Um, so go check that out. You'll be on my mailing list after you sign up for that. And then later this spring, I'm actually having, I'm, I'm launching a full video course on investing that's a paid course. And so if you sort of track with me, stay on my mailing list through that point, you'll hear more about that. And I'm starting that off with um, a totally free webinar that you can access without, without paying for anything. So lots of free material there. And if you want to go even deeper with me, the opportunity to do that as well. Coming up on March 9th of this year, 2018, I'm also hosting my annual free uh, tax webinar. So this is for uh, graduate students and postdocs who are domestic, uh, domestic to the United States. And it's helping you with your federal tax return. So uh, go to pf4phds.com slash hellophd. I'll have a link there for you to sign up to register for that tax webinar as well. Again, it's occurring March 9th at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. And if you sign up and you can't attend live, that's perfectly fine. You will get the recording afterwards. But if you do attend live, you'll have the opportunity to ask questions. And are you on any social medias that people can reach you? I am. Um, I'm on Facebook at you know Personal Finance for PhDs, and then on Twitter at PF for PhDs. Fantastic. Well, Emily, it has been great to talk to you as usual. Thanks for coming back on the show again. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks so much. That was our interview with Emily, Dan. Okay, well, let's move on to the etymology puzzle. The clue last week. Species from this order of soft-bodied invertebrates sometimes have very hard shells. This is a phylum for you, Josh. I'm not good with my taxonomy, I have to say. That is not my strong suit. Uh, Cephalopod? uh, A cephalopod is a type of this thing. So the answer I was looking for was mollusk or mollusca. And that comes from a Latin word, molluscus, meaning thin-shelled from the word mollus, which means soft. Um, And the reason that these are called mollusks, even though this uh, group contains clams and other hard-shelled things, is because our friend Carolus Linnaeus only included the the squid-octopus group when he named it, and then later these groups were merged. So now it includes slugs and snails and clams and octopi and things like that. I'm super impressed, Dan, in the show notes when you wrote Linnaeus, you actually did that little A-E thing mushed together. What's that called? Uh, it's First of all, I copied and pasted it, <laughs> so I didn't really do that, but yeah. Uh, and then the second thing I want to say is I'm heading to Baltimore for a conference next week. There's this super great oyster place up there that I'm really looking forward to. Is you that will, a mollusk? You will eat some mollusks. Yeah, 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 good for you. Yeah, it is the largest marine phylum, which is kind of impressive. There are 85,000 known species. Uh, and about 20, it's, that represents 23% of the named marine organisms. Most of them are really gross and I don't like them, but kind of a cool stat. You like oysters? I like any of these things deep fried. It's all right. Not on the half shell, cold. Mm, uh, yeah, not often, not <laughs> often. Let me give you the clue for next week, Josh. To solve a problem from this branch of mathematics, you must consolidate the variables on one side of the equation. 
Read it one more time. To solve a problem from this branch of mathematics, you must consolidate the variables on one side of the equation. Remember, I'm looking for a scientific word described by the clue. Once you get it, you'll find the literal meaning of that science word as a phrase in the clue itself. If you think you know the answer, email it to puzzle at hellophd.com and we'll randomly select a winner from all the correct responses and send the puzzler an Amazon gift card. All right, Dan. Thanks for that. Thanks for joining me again this week. If you have a question or topic idea, we'd love to hear it. You can email us at podcast at hellophd.com, send us a tweet at hellophd, or leave us a message on the Facebook page. If you like the show, leave us a review on iTunes. We love the feedback. If you want to support the show, you can become a patron. Simply go to our website, hellophd.com, and click the Become a Patron button, or you can visit patreon.com slash hellophd and join our Slack channel just for HelloPhD patrons. All right, Josh, really kind of a heavy, heady episode, but I think a really important one. And we look forward to some feedback from our listeners to continue this conversation. It's, it's one that we need to have. Absolutely. See you next time, Dan. See you next time.